Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 669. I am your... <laughs> all right, all right. Eh? Now behave yourselves, behave yourselves. 669, I am your host. Tony C. Smith. So welcome to today's show. I've had a little reminder of our very own Amy H. Sturgis, because we have Amy on the show today. A little, just an email. Tony, don't forget. <laughs> don't forget, I'm on. <laughs> I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction, which is A Float by Joe Weintraub. And this story was first published in Altad State Science Fiction and Fantasy Stories About Change, Mendhill Books, 2011. And like I say as well, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at Zora history. Did I tell you last time that Amy sent us over some some man's beard grooming? <laughs> I, got, I, I asked Amy because it wasn't selling over here, so I'm now officially... Oh, it's lovely, Amy. Oh, it's lovely, yes. Silky smooth. <laughs> So we'll jump into the main fiction straight away there. Like I say, it is A Float by Joe Weintraub. A member of the Dramatist Guild, Jay Weintraub has short plays and rare Joe dramas produced throughout the United States and in Australia, New Zealand, India and Germany. His fiction poetry essays have been published in all sorts of literary reviews, general magazines, scholarly journals and his translations from the French and Italian have appeared in publications in the US and the UK and Australia. As a translator, he has also introduced the Italian horror writer Nicola Lombardi to the English-speaking public. 
Now, this story is narrated by that good, good, good narrator there, Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is a voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He's previously recorded for Farfetch Fables, Tales to Terrify and The Sea. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Afloat by Joe Weintraub. Let me be very clear about this. I did not agree to participate for my own sake. After twenty years of service as chief scientific officer, I had much to offer our government and to future generations. And although the expense was considerable, my experience, my technical expertise, my abilities to innovate and process information would certainly produce value far beyond the initial investment and the custodial costs. Tenfold, at least. After all, genius, and that is not my own characterization, but that of the media and my colleagues, is not a commodity that is easily obtained, but a gift to be appreciated and nurtured when it so infrequently appears. Nor do I take personal credit for having defied, or at least temporarily deferred, death. As with most technological advances, this was the product of years of development, thousands of hours of work by hundreds of technicians, a series of timely synergies, and, since our stated objectives were of another sort altogether, not a little bit of serendipity and luck. Let me explain. For many years, it had been the charge of my division to develop an AI capacity that would equal the cognitive power of the human brain. Naturally, we modeled our efforts on the thing itself, although it was generally believed by most of our biotechnicians that any attempt to replicate the full functioning of the brain, with its hundred billion neurons connected by ten trillion synapses, was an exercise in futility. And who knows, perhaps they were right, since we never managed to achieve more than a crude imitation of the higher powers of cognition. But along the way, we were remarkably effective in converting visual and oral signals into electronic configurations. And it was those same skeptical biotechnicians who decided to apply these digital conversions to organic neural receptors, an essential component to the success of what was to follow. If we could, they argued, enable machines to see and hear, then why not the blind and the deaf, too? And before long, we had patented devices destined to enrich the lives of millions of disabled persons. Advances like these gave our group a solid reputation for biomedical innovation, and before long, the Saratoga Project was assigned to my division. I had been monitoring Saratoga for some time, and I was impressed by its progress in preserving organs, hearts, livers, lungs, and the like, in isolation. But when the team came under my direction... I was astonished to learn that they had reached a stage where the health and viability of an isolated organ could be maintained, in a controlled environment, almost indefinitely. Of course, their goal was inventorying these organs for eventual transplantation, and until Saratoga became a part of my division, no one had seriously considered experimenting with the human brain. Just as we had failed to replicate artificially its almost infinite complexity— Transplanting the brain would have required an equally advanced technology, far beyond our capabilities at that time. But simply preserving the brain in isolation seemed to be an attainable goal. And since, as any reputable philosopher would argue, personal identity resides in that organ, 
Transferring a healthy brain into a secure artificial environment would simplify the task of prolonging individual existence long after other organic functions had failed. Certainly, it was an experiment worth attempting, and the fact that my own cancer had by then been diagnosed and declared inoperable had little to do with this change in direction, although I don't deny that it may have hastened the process. Trained as an engineer, I supervised the construction of the environment myself. Of course, it was far more complex than the devices that sustained hearts and lungs. But once the nutrient mix, the varying concentrations of proteins and enzymes, and the daily modifications in ionization levels were determined, the problem became one of implementation rather than content. And I saw to it that the resources were made available to create not only a functioning environment, but one that would operate for at least as long as our civilization endured. The plutonium generator, for instance, would provide sufficient energy to keep the mechanism functioning for dozens of millennia. Huge sealed vats were constructed to store the components for the supplies of glycogen, phosphates, lipids, and enzymes. The contents to be dispensed drop by drop into the solution, where all the chemical reactions would occur. With much of the waste matter being recycled back into the system, healthy organic life could be sustained for almost as long as the generator produced the energy to keep the systems in operation. Heat displacement would eventually bring the whole apparatus to a halt, but my chief mathematician assured me that, even without maintenance, stasis would not occur, theoretically, until long after the planet spun from its orbit and fell into the sun. Of course, without the ability to communicate, to receive stimulation and respond in kind, I would neither have authorized nor participated in such a venture. But by then, our digital conversion biotechnologies had reached such a degree of sophistication that the most complex information could be easily communicated directly to the relevant centers of the brain. If my mental ability could be sustained and enriched by a continuous flow of intellectual stimulation, and if communications, in return, could be sent from this superior and continually expanding intelligence, contributing to the betterment of all posterity, then such an experiment would surely be worth the effort, regardless of the cost and the considerable sacrifice. On the other hand, if such communications were not successfully received, or if my own observations were not being transmitted, or if either of these activities became dysfunctional in the future, the experiment was to be immediately terminated, and I would be accorded the memorial rights due to an official of my standing and accomplishment. Ordinarily, the surgery itself would have been a fearful thing to contemplate, but by then my body had withered away before my eyes, an ugly painful encumbrance requiring larger and larger doses of analgesics, resulting in longer and longer periods of drugged stupor. Success or annihilation? I was prepared for either one, and even though all of the systems had not been fully tested, I signed the releases, endowed all my worldly goods to the financing of the project, and instructed the surgical division to proceed with the intervention a month ahead of schedule. The procedure took three days, and even though life support was a minor concern in comparison with the tedious implantation of the thousands of microelectrodes, I was later informed that I had been twice pronounced clinically dead, for periods of twenty seconds each. Of course, I have no recollection of this. No more than a patient under anesthesia remembers the removal of an appendix. But when I awoke, it was to a field of golden sunflowers, the test pattern I had chosen for the occasion and when I received confirmation of my first transmission, Mr. Watson, come here, I want you, 
I would have cried for joy if I'd had the eyes to do so. I remained awake for several days, exploring my new environment. I had been born into another world, and like an infant I could first only crawl about, as it were, and take a few awkward steps. Tests had been arranged in advance, but they were far more rigorous than I'd anticipated, and when they were finally completed I fell into a long, hallucinatory sleep. I awoke, still exhausted, and I immediately induced another period of deep sleep, something I could accomplish with relative ease. Before the operation, and with the help of electrochemical stimuli, I had become adept at initiating trance-like states of sleep, full of pleasurable images and experiences. The most effective of these stimulants had been introduced into my environment, and I was gratified to discover that not only could I descend into these trances whenever I wished, but that I could usually manipulate the visions, acting as a director, more or less, of my own dreams. They were illusions, of course, but it was nevertheless a consolation to be able to experience the pleasures of the body, taste, touch, smell, even sex, as if I had been grafted back into the youthful and vigorous self that I'd thought had been lost to me forever. Even on those occasions when my visions would darken, as dreams often do, I could usually dispel the threatening shadows and escape back into a dream that was, if not ecstatic, at least safe. But although I could manipulate these trances, I was often slow to wake from them, and my team was given strict instructions to arouse me after every eight-hour period of sleep. The schedule that I then adopted was similar to the one I'd followed before the operation. Upon awakening, I would be supplied with the latest scientific literature and technical findings, the most significant symposium papers and refereed articles, and also the general news of the day. Free of the conflicting diversions and interruptions of the body, I found that I could assimilate and retain a remarkable amount of data, but for no more than eight hours, after which I began to read the latest books, listen to the best music, experience whatever could be digitized and fed directly into my neural receptors. This second eight-hour period was primarily a time for relaxation and reflection, but it also contributed to the store of memories and images that I drew upon for my dreams, which filled the final third of my day. Whenever convenient, I communicated my own thoughts and observations, and over the years I collaborated on a multitude of projects, appearing as co-author of some fifty papers, I've also been credited with participation in several patented techniques, and a good portion of my maintenance costs have been underwritten by the subsequent royalties. This routine and these activities were continued for approximately 37 years, 2 months, and 6 days. And for approximately 37 years, 2 months, and 6 days, I contributed to our scientific understanding and the technological progress of our civilization. I say, approximately because I cannot be sure of the length of that last day. For on that sixth day, I was never awakened from my sleep. I could have been dormant for my normal eight hours, or for a day, or for a month, or for a year, or even more. I have no way of knowing. All I know is that after thirty-seven years, two months, and six days, the last day of indeterminate length, I awoke into silence. After all that time, I had an acute sense of my own physical well-being, and as far as I could tell, all systems were functioning perfectly, and my neural receptors were healthy. There was simply no external communication, as if my sensory organs had been disconnected and all that I could perceive was within myself. 
At first, I was calm, and I transmitted one message after another. But if staff were there to receive them, they gave no sign of their presence. Naturally, my communications soon became disjointed and desperate. The digital equivalents of cries for help. And even though I was sure my environment was normal, unchanged, and I was quite healthy, I suddenly felt as if I were drowning. After a few more urgent appeals for assistance, I concluded that I had entered a nightmare unawares, and I quickly induced another state of pleasurable ecstasy, fully expecting to be awakened into my usual schedule. Again, I have no idea how long I slept, and when I awoke it was again into silence. What had happened? All of my support systems were operational, I was properly nourished, ionization levels appeared stable, and despite an occasional suffocating attack of anxiety, I was fully oxygenated. It was as if my entire environment, self-sustaining and functional, had been transported into a closet, locked away, and forgotten. What had happened? I recalled having read reports about foreign insurgencies and new and fiendish weapons of destruction. But there would have been more warning if, say, a global war had erupted. If there had been a threat of mass annihilation, more diplomatic activity, more military maneuvers, more urgency. And I would have been informed. After all, I was still an official, a member in good standing of the ruling government. I was also aware that there had been increased internal discontent, talk of dismantling technology and returning to a simpler past. Code words, of course, for succumbing to our baser instincts and descending into barbarism. Ten years before, in fact, when these same tendencies seemed to be emerging once again, I ordered my environment to be sealed and my supplies to be extended to last through the life of the systems. But even at their height, these were minority movements. And again, I would have known if they had become serious threats. I would have been warned. Or perhaps it's something as simple as a budgetary crisis. A loss of government support until funding can be restored. My team has always been loyal and respectful of my needs, even at my most demanding. Perhaps they were simply reluctant or afraid to tell me. Of course, all of the original group are gone, dead or retired by now. And this new generation, this new social climate, with a lack of values I could never understand, am I simply being ignored? Is this some kind of sadistic game? But I've given strict instructions that the project should be terminated immediately if it ceases to be of use. I have no desire to prolong an existence that is no more than a drain on our resources, a freak of technology, like some comatose patient kept needlessly alive. But I had every indication that my contributions were still being appreciated and valued, that the experiment was still considered a terrific success. Why, one of the last messages I received had informed me that our team had captured another master's prize for breakthroughs in neurological controls, techniques that I personally reviewed and, on occasion, simplified. Or maybe what I fear most has occurred. Some unexpected planetary catastrophe has suddenly reduced the life on Earth to a baser level of existence, or ended it altogether. My environment is underground, sealed and self-sufficient. It's protected from radiation and severe variations in climate by several layers of lead and Earth. Am I to be isolated here in this subterranean chamber to carry on my existence, helpless and alone, until the end of time? I know this must sound like the hysterical ravings of a frightened old man, but I would not be sending this transmission, assuming my transmitter is still functioning, if again and again I had not awakened from my dreams, 
each one of indeterminate length, to be confronted by this impenetrable frozen silence. And now this new, even more imperative concern. Our ancient Eastern religion spoke of nirvana as a desired culmination to human existence, and I suppose that when I finally resigned myself to this solitary fate, I sought to achieve a similar sort of transport, if only temporarily, through meditation and dream. The mind contains an inexhaustible store of images and fantasies, and I have no idea how many months, years passed as I slipped into one trance after another, awakening only long enough to determine whether I was still alone, and then, having received my answer, quickly falling asleep again. Occasionally, the dreams would darken and become troubling, but I usually managed to turn them into more pleasurable directions, although sometimes they would become sufficiently threatening to awaken me. But the effects of most nightmares quickly diminish, and their content is soon forgotten. And when that uncomfortable burning sensation, as if I had been holding the palm of my hand over a lit candle, first disrupted my sleep, I assumed it to be the result of a fitful dream. When I was awakened again by the same shock of pain, I was sure it was a recurrence of my nightmare. But when it happened a third and fourth time, I suspected that its cause might be elsewhere. Moreover, as it continued to awaken me, the burning intensified by slight degrees, and on each occasion persisted for several seconds more, as if the hand were drawing closer to the flame and holding its position for a longer time. To confirm my suspicions, I remained awake, counting the seconds, minutes, and hours between one of these attacks and the onset of the next. I performed this tedious calculation three times, and each time the interval equaled sixteen hours, give or take a few minutes. And although it had been months, years, maybe decades, since I had followed a routine schedule, I recalled that every sixteen hours the solution in which I was floating would be fortified by an infusion of carbohydrates, enzymes, and phosphates, timed to correspond with my awakenings in my most active period. In short, something within the system was clearly poisoning it at regular intervals a corroded valve or joint, an accidental oxidation of some component of my raw supplies, a malfunction in waste removal leading to a surplus of toxins. Whatever the case, something had invaded my environment, and the nutrients and chemical reactions that were preserving my health were now also stimulating my pain receptors at regular intervals and with ever-increasing intensity. Faced with this conclusion, I quickly retreated into another reverie, and sixteen hours later I was again returned to consciousness by a painful seizure, again slightly stronger than the previous, and again lasting a few seconds more. The seizures now persist for about an hour, from the initial searing shock to a gradual alleviation into a throbbing soreness. Afterwards I escape into sleep, but these attacks have the power to remove me from any reverie no matter how deep. If I were so inclined... I could probably calculate the time left me before the interval diminishes to nothing, before the concentration of contaminants becomes great enough to prevent me from ever again returning into the pleasurable quiet of my dreams. All that will remain then to keep my mind alive is the expectation of the constant and certain intensification of each new attack. Of course, the brain, lacking a complex network of nerves, cannot be a source of pain, and there is likely no correlation between what I am experiencing through these neural receptors and any real damage being done to the organism. But perhaps that's not the case. 
and I'm hopeful that whatever malfunction has precipitated this disastrous sequence of events will eventually destroy me, too, before sleep is no longer an option and there is no more refuge to be found. Otherwise, unless by some miracle I am heard and the experiment is finally ended, the only solace I can expect is the submersion of my consciousness into madness as I float toward eternity on a sea of fire. And there you go. Big thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. Very nice to have you on. Always a pleasure. Someone new there. And Anthony, it is always a pleasure, lad. Thank you indeedy. It was just brilliant. Thank you. So, Amy, I've remembered. (laughs) Ames! Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to talk about an author who was born in the 19th century, but began publishing in the 20th century. She is one of those long-lost authors, if you will, because she deserves to be known far better than she is. And fortunately, her work is making a comeback, and I want to celebrate that as well. I'm talking about Eleanor Mordaunt. That is actually a pen name for Evelyn May Close, who lived from May 7th, 1872 to June 25th, 1942. She was a British writer, and she also spent a great deal of time living in and writing from Australia. And her pen name was Eleanor Mordaunt, and I'm going to spell that for you. That's E-L-I-N-O-R-M-O-R-D-A-U-N-T. I mention that because while I'm going to be highly recommending a wonderful new collection of her genre work called The Villa and the Vortex, Supernatural Stories 1916-1924, which is edited by Gothic scholar Melissa Edmondson, and contains some of Mordaunt's science fiction as well as other genre work, 
I do also want to point out that some of her publications are also available for free online. You can find some of her work online at places such as Project Gutenberg in text form, and also some of her work is available in audio form at LibriVox. And first of all, I'd like to say that after reading many of her genre works, and I'm talking about science fiction stories, weird stories, fantasy, folk horror, gothic horror, I can say that I think her work has unjustly been overlooked. After her death, she was neglected, her work was neglected, and it failed to be in a lot of the sort of reprint anthologies that kept some of her contemporaries' reputations alive. But while she was living, she was recognized as a master of the craft. As Melissa Edmondson says in her introduction, in fact, let me give you this whole first paragraph of her introduction to the villa and the vortex, which I will talk about a bit more shortly, but Melissa Edmondson really sums this up well. Quote, Eleanor Mordaunt lived an eventful life, a life that would have fitted well into the plot of one of her many novels. She was an independent, free-spirited woman, traveling the world and visiting North and South America, Africa, Asia, and Australia. She lost a fiancé early in life, escaped from one abusive husband, separated from another, and raised a son entirely on her own. She survived malaria, the Zeppelin attacks on London during the First World War, and the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. Amidst this life of adventure, Mordaunt was constantly gathering material for her writing. From the beginning of the 20th century until the early 1940s, she published best-selling novels with leading London publishing houses, as well as collections of short fiction, travel literature, works for children, and numerous pieces for magazines and newspapers. Her writing was compared by reviewers to that of Algernon Blackwood, H.G. Wells, and Joseph Conrad, and her work was reviewed favorably alongside publications by Blackwood and James Joyce. Both Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield reviewed her work, end quote. So I think you can get a sense of her genre cred right there in the fact that she was compared to H.G. Wells and Algernon Blackwood, among others. After reading a number of her short stories, I'm struck by a couple of things. Number one, she moves in between and sort of blurs the lines between genre incredibly well. Some authors, you know, you like a story of theirs and then you find a collection and it's great that you liked that story because you're going to read a dozen more that are just like it. Not the case with Eleanor Mordaunt. There are repeated themes, and she loves to infuse everything with a sense of the weird, but each story is very much its own thing. She was constantly experimenting with science fiction, with fantasy, with folk horror, with the gothic, and that is really interesting to see, the variety of genres she uses and moves between. And also, although she has great 
premises and great ideas. And, you know, those are sort of the heroes of science fiction in many ways. She also has a tremendous grasp on human nature. And the characters she draws, even the secondary characters, the ones who really get broad brushstrokes, they are three-dimensional people. And the sense of immediacy of your buy-in to the story, you suddenly feel very invested in what's happening to these people. And I think that's because she had a lifelong project of being a student of human nature. Her travelogues that she wrote, the way she funded her travel so that she could go and experience and then report back and write about, not high society, the same people mixing with each other, but in places they deemed exotic. No, she was trying to meet people of different places, of different cultures, experience the authenticity of place, and expand her understanding of what it is that makes us all human. And she took all of that in and then used that in her stories. And so it seems she distills a lot of her experience and a lot of her observation in very poignant and thoughtful, insightful descriptions to create these stories that feel human, even as they're pushing the boundary of the supernatural or of the fantastic. I will mention specifically two of her science fiction stories. Hodge, from 1921, is about a pair of siblings, teens, who discover a how do I put this, prehistoric man and are able to reanimate him and bring him home as something like a pet, but things don't work out that way. Hodge is not a pet. He's more like a ghost, a window into a different time. He's something different. And he's a man. And his existence, his nearness, also awakens something in them. It's a very complex and thoughtful story based on this idea of the reanimated prehistoric man. A tragic story. And Luz came out in 1922. It's a spooky, spooky story about a former doctor who has gone wrong in mad scientist <laughs> fashion. He decides to sort of push the boundaries of the possible using ancient knowledge and cutting-edge medical technique to try to, yes, thwart death. And Victor Frankenstein-like, he does not take responsibility. He is tied up in his own hubris, his own sense of being above, right, the repercussions of his actions, and that leads to his downfall. That is a particularly chilling story, above and beyond the science fiction and the larger premise as to how he is trying to achieve immortality for himself. There is an extended sequence of remarkable fog in which the young woman who is the protagonist is essentially blind, trying to find her way home. And the fog is full of other people who are likewise bewildered and disoriented. And her guide, who offers to help her get 
to where she's going takes her somewhere else. And the notion of being dependent on a stranger in an unforeseen emergency situation and being half aware that you're being led into a trap, it's quite, quite potent. I also want to give a shout out here to a couple of other really great stories. The Countryside from 1917 is a story of a rector and his wife who move from London to the countryside where the rector will then be the pillar of the community and the representative of Christian enlightenment. Well, (laughs) that's the plan. It doesn't go that way. And ultimately, you have a story of folk horror, of witchcraft, and the rector's wife is involved. It's a story of old ways versus much, much older ways. It's a story about hypocrisy and a story about power and a story about gender. Absolutely. It's great stuff. And another straight-up haunted house gothic horror story that's so cinematic, it really deserves to be filmed at some point. Four Wallpapers from 1924. It, as I said, is a haunted house story. It's set in a Spanish mansion. And the idea is that as each layer of wallpaper comes off, stripping the wallpaper is uncovering another layer to an old family tragedy. And These layers are being discovered from the newest to the oldest, and the visuals there of uncovering more that was secret and more that was terrible. It's very nicely done, well-crafted. So, Handheld Press, which has been putting out a lot of overlooked, nearly lost, underappreciated, ready-for- reevaluation, reappraisal, and celebration works, has just published The Villa and the Vortex, Supernatural Stories, 1916 to 1924, by Eleanor Mordaunt, collecting those genre stories. It is edited by Melissa Edmondson. And on September 14th, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Edmondson as part of the online book launch for this collection. And I'm thinking that this, looking back on genre history, will drop after September 14th. If that's the case, go to Handheld Press and check out their YouTube channel, and you can see the recording of that book launch, the video of that event, if you would like to. And I hope you will. As always, I find it really exciting when authors who are not front and center in our dialogue about genre get reintegrated into that story, when we get those voices that we've almost lost brought back and we get to appreciate how much they contributed at the time and how much their work still has to say to us and to inspire more genre work in the future. And in the case of Eleanor Mordaunt, her experience as a world traveler, independent woman early in the 20th century, a woman of letters, and author of long fiction and short fiction and nonfiction, it is good to hear her voice again. And I would also comment, we are creeping up, creeping is a good verb to use here, 
on the spooky season, my favorite season, and some of her stories definitely work if you are, like I am, a fan of Halloween. So if you're prepping for the most gothic of times of year, Eleanor Mordaunt is one to read. And speaking of which, please do check me out on social media where I will be celebrating October in my usual daily fashion because it is the very, very best month of the year. I hope you are safe and well, and I hope that this has been of interest to you, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we get together again to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Oh, Amy. Big hug and a big thank you for sending over me, um, what was it called? Temple Smoke, that was the name. <laughs> Very manly. <laughs> Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.